Steve Jackson Games for Nordcast, Episode 3, September 28, 2006. Thanks for downloading the Fenordcast again. This is episode three. Coming up, we talk to Thomas Weigel, the E23 manager, about his trip to Gen Con. We get Steve's quick thoughts on Worldcon LA. And we have a special guest Fenorder, Joseph Browning from Expeditious Retreat Press. But first, a Dr. Crom segment where he and Paul talk about the upcoming GURPS martial arts. This segment is Dr. Crom's Laboratory. Uh, in which we speak to Sean Punch, the line editor of GURPS, about things relating to his line. Um, today, we're going to be talking about GURPS martial arts. So, Sean, how is GURPS martial arts coming? Uh, it's coming along well. I'm in the process of editing the book, getting it ready to get to production. Uh, we've got Seven chapters plus end papers, and I'm in the middle of the fifth chapter, so progress is looking good. I haven't run into any major pitfalls, and there's been a few little tweaks made. Myself and the uh, other writer, Peter Del Orto, have uh, at the last minute caught a couple little errors and added a little, few little features and cut a few boring bits, so it should be a pretty good book, and I don't see anything weird happening. So you and Peter Del Orto wrote it, and you're editing it? Isn't that kind of unusual? Well... It's a little unusual, yeah, because normally you don't want an editor touching his own writing or a writer writing for his own editorial hand. There's a tendency to miss errors when these sorts of things happen. But the thing is, Peter is the subject matter expert and wrote the bulk of the material on uh, historical information, uh, martial arts styles, the actual martial arts tactics, things of this nature. And I mainly provide a rules content, which in a lot of cases consisted of a line of stats, you know, the weight of a, an axe or the, the damage of a knife or something like this. And this kind of thing isn't really prone to uh, text errors of, of, of the kind you can't catch. They're, they're prone to rules errors, but I'm the rules editor, and I have to look at it whether I wrote it or not. On top of that, um, the playtesters hit us with a lot of good content, and that required substantial revisions during the playtest to certain aspects of the text. And a lot of my editing is not so much fixing my errors or Peter's errors as fixing errors introduced by haste when we threw some text into the manuscript during a playtest. So all told, I'm pretty confident that my editing the book won't mean any major disasters. I'm Ordinarily, I wouldn't ask this of an author because books are like children and you don't want to say what part they love best, but since Peter wrote the majority of the flavorful stuff, what do you think the best part of the book will be? My favorite part of the book would very likely be the chapter on martial arts styles themselves, because it's different from the earlier editions in a couple of important ways, which I think are um, improvements, great improvements. And one of those, one of those ways in particular is the fact that each style now includes some illustration of the tactics a fighter might actually use with that style. Previously, the styles were just a list of stats and a bit of history. We still have the history, we still have stats, but Peter uh, took a lot of time to find out how these guys fight and to give players an idea, okay, say you've got all these abilities on your sheet and you've invested your points and you bought the skills and what have you, and you're sitting there and the GM breaks out a map and you're jumping your character around the map, kicking things. Well, how do you do it? How do you play this guy, role-play this guy in combat and actually have his tactics line up with his training? And that's, to me, uh, 
an amazing step because it requires a lot of research and expertise that uh, we didn't have before and we have now. And I've, I give an honorable mention to one of my own parts. That would be the chapter on combat tactics because it kind of fits with the combat tactics of styles. And this is generalized tactics. It's an expansion on the combat chapters, the basic set. And the reason I like that is because it complements Peter's work in Chapter 5. It gives a whole lot of new options you simply couldn't do with just the basic set. And so those two together pretty much uh, define what I really love about this book. Not that there aren't other things I love about it as well. So we've got a book full of styles. How about ninjas? Everybody loves ninjas. Everybody loves ninjas. There's two answers to your question. One will sound disappointing, but I'll follow it up with a cool answer. Uh, ninjutsu, as such, isn't in the book. We didn't sit down and write it up. And the reason for that is that, well, ninjutsu is a martial arts style. Ninjutsu is actually a term that defines everything a ninja does, and especially disguises, deceptions, uh, a lot of social skills. And that's really cool and interesting stuff, but it's also not really topical for uh, a book called Martial Arts, because it isn't a martial art. It would be very appropriate for a book on Japan or a book on ninjas. But the good, happy answer that will make everyone forgive me for what I just said is that we do have the fighting style uh, used by the ninja in the book, taijutsu. This is a bit, a bit controversial in name because taijutsu refers actually to the personal, up-close, hand-to-hand, arm-breaking, face-punching style built into a lot of weapon styles in Japan, not just not just the ones ninjas use, but in this particular case, it refers to the barehanded combat of the ninja, and that's indeed how the term taijutsu is most often used and what it's best known as. And all the arm styles one would find in Japan, the swords, chains, all those crazy ninja weapons, they're all in there as well. So you can build a very complete ninja if you want. A guy who's an expert at throwing stars, hitting people's swords, tangling people off the chains, kicking their butt, everything. It's all in there. So, yeah, it's got ninjas. It's just got a lot more detail ninjas, and it's not all labeled for ninjas only, because that would be a little deceptive, which is probably appropriate for a ninja. Since you've gone more realistic on the ninja front, does that transfer to everything else? Is the focus of GURPS martial arts realistic, historical martial arts styles? Well, this touches on a bigger question I'll get to in a bit, but... The short answer to your question is, no, it doesn't focus exclusively on those things. It just starts with them as a foundation, like a lot of GURPS, in particular the basic set, but also supplements uh, from the first edition on. We take the stance that it's best to get the realistic stuff right, because if you get that right, you can always create the crazy larger-than-life stuff by leaving out the parts you don't like or by making it less realistic. But if you start with the crazy cinematic stuff and then try to make it realistic, it's a lot harder because the cinematic stuff emits a lot of details you need for realism, whereas realistic stuff includes extra detail and really you make a cinematic by toning down that detail. So we started out with a firm basis in realistic historical material, and then we layered on, here's how you turn off this part you might not like, or here's how you can add this little extra twist that you don't really want a realistic game. So you can cover all sorts of games, from the totally, completely gritty, arm-breaking, realistic stuff, right up to and including the most insane, flying through the air, not letting your feet touch the ground, martial arts you see in the craziest anime, and everything in between. We've got characters, and we've got campaigns. Uh, you've said Powers is the third basic book covering advantages, and martial arts expands the combat system, everything from the cinematic to the way realistic, Asian and European and all that stuff. So now is the GURPS core system complete? Well, there are certain other elements we'll not want to add in. I'd say that right now, with uh, campaigns and characters, and with the Powers book, the Magic book, and now the Martial Arts book coming out, we'll have the most solid core uh, 
material done. I wouldn't say it's the only core material, but you sort of look at it in, in the abstract and you say, okay, we look at the basic set. It's got chapters on characters. What can characters do? They've got advantages. Well, power's expands advantages. They've got skills. Well, martial arts will expand skills, at least fighting skills, which are the ones PCs are usually interested in having. It's got psionics. Well, that's in powers, too. It's got magic spells. Well, that's in magic. And it's got a whole bunch of weapons. Well, martial arts will add a whole bunch more weapons. And then you go into campaigns and you continue the same line of thought. And there's a big, huge combat system, three chapters of it. Martial arts expands in that quite significantly. There's a chapter on in injury and bad stuff. Martial arts adds to that. Really, the only core text we're still, I guess, needing to expand on would be that on animals and that on vehicles. And we have plans for that stuff. But I don't know if I'd call it core in the same sense because it won't be so much real rules as it will be uh, catalogs, animals, catalogs, vehicles, things of this kind. So I'd say we're, we're a good chunk of the way along, if not there. It sounds like martial arts is focusing on combat more broadly. Now, as I recall from the third edition version of GURPS Martial Arts, that kind of focused on Asia. Uh, in addition to expanding the rules content, are you expanding a more worldwide view with the fourth edition version? Yeah, that was our aim. The 3E martial arts book had a few biases. I mean, I'm not saying it was a bad book, because it wasn't. It was a pretty good book, especially considering what was available at the time for martial arts and gaming. But it was narrow and focused, necessarily, because the author only had less than half as many words and pages to play with, and uh, that limited him somewhat. Now, Peter and I sat down and decided, okay, with all these pages, we can certainly get into a lot more detail about a lot more stuff. What's that stuff going to be? And we looked at the third edition book and realized, okay, it had two biases. One was it was very pro-Asian, and the other was it was very pro-unarmed. And we aimed especially to add non-Asian martial arts and add a lot more armed martial arts because martial arts, I mean, if you look at the term, basically means arts used in warfare, the skills you'd use when fighting. In, in a military situation. And for most of human history, after first guy fell out of a tree and hit his head on a rock and decided to throw it at somebody, anyhow, wars have been fought with weapons. And there's a lot more focus on weapons. And historically, there were many wars with weapons or with any other means of killing each other in Europe and Africa as there, as there were in Asia. And we've got European martial arts in the book as well as Asian ones. I'd say they're close to imbalance, and we also got some martial arts from elsewhere in the book. Now, it's harder to get martial arts from Africa because there's far less uh, recorded history there, but we threw a couple in. We've got uh, South American content, mostly modern. Again, not because we didn't want to have older stuff, but because it's hard to find out what, say, the Incas were doing. Uh, they didn't keep long recorded records on their martial arts. And, of course, a lot of modern ones that are found all over, especially military ones used in Almost any country, it's got a military. Russia, Israel, the USA, all over. And so it's got a real mix of content in a way that I think the original third edition book did not. But that's a lot of stuff. Um, you, you've got the the fighting styles from around the world. You've got the uh, expanded combat rules. You've got all the styles. Is that all going to fit in 240 pages? I'm hoping it will. I'm in the middle of editing the book now, and I have to say, yeah, the word count is very long, and I'm really not happy with the idea of having to make significant cuts to it, because almost anything we can cut is going to influence other things. We didn't sit down and write each of these things as an essay and then throw them all together in a way that you can just pull the essays out again if you don't have enough room for them. We, we sat down and planned this. We spent a lot of time 
communicating by voice and by email about how A would relate to B and B relate to C and so on. So I'm sincerely hoping I won't have to cut anything to make room for it all, which means it might be a very jam-packed book. I'm already talking with our art director about keeping the art light enough that we can fit the text in. Hopefully he'll agree with me and not say I'm insane and tell me to cut out 10 or 20,000 words. But yeah, I think uh, dollar for dollar, people buying this book are going to be given a lot of text, a lot of uh, content, not just rules, but also research, uh, adventure ideas, character ideas, everything. Everything you could think of really to do with the martial arts. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Sean. Um, and that concludes our preview of GURPS Martial Arts. Join us next time on Dr. Crom's Lab when we discuss your GURPS questions. Uh, look for the Ask Dr. Crom thread in the Fnordcast forum. Bill Gates withdrew from Poland and controls the Mosquito. Continuing summer con coverage on the Fnordcast, this is Gen Con. We sent Thomas Weigel with the portable studio that Paul took to Origins. He talked to some people and got his thoughts on some of the things he saw. And then we decided to bring him in the studio to talk about some of the other things he saw. First off, here's Thomas at the Expeditious Retreat Press booth. This is Thomas Weigel at Gen Con. This is a very, very happy day for me. I'm currently at the booth for Expeditious Retreat Press, where I am looking at their selection of books. Uh, they're one of my favorite publishers. They put together a lot of things uh, useful for fantasy settings, which is what I tend to run. Uh, Magical Society, Ecology, and Culture is a world-building book that I've enjoyed and used a great deal. Magical Society Beast Builder is uh, essentially, well, it's essential for D20 games. And a magical medieval society, Western Europe, they just re-released a, uh, a new print run of it and is pretty much what started my fanboydom for Expeditious Retreat Press. They're also going to be releasing soon a magical society Silk Road, which is a counterpart to Western Europe, uh, covering the Silk Trail and fantasy games built around merchanting, trading, and similar things. The PDF is actually available on E23, and all of the other books are available through Warehouse 23. These are very good resources. In addition to that, they do some one-on-one -on -one adventures, which are games between you and a friend when you don't have a large enough group. And they also do Monster Geographica, uh, underground Martian aquatic forest. These are basically small pocket-sized editions in which a large number of monsters arranged by terrain type, CR, and a variety of other ways are available. I basically own everything that Expeditious Retreat Press has published to date, and I've been very happy with all of it. When Thomas first got back from Gen Con, he was telling us stories about all the odd things he saw. And the weirdest to me was probably the Gamer Olympics. He didn't go in depth on this explaining it, but it just seemed kind of strange. Actually making gamers <laughs> do physical things that don't involve dice. Yeah, it doesn't, uh, doesn't exactly match up my vision of what Gen Con was going to be like either. Uh, basically, there are some reenactors for uh, like Roman legions and uh, SCA types of people, people with big padded weapons. Uh, that got together, got a room. This Gen Con was apparently the first time they'd uh, that they'd gotten this and gotten a room set up. And uh, they built this little arena with uh, some bleachers around it and uh, some faux doors in the back. And uh, they basically had a bunch of guys out there in 
uh, a variety of Roman costumes, uh, legionnaire dress, uh, some barbarians, that sort of thing. And gamers could sign up for it. Well, anybody. I mean, we call them gamers because they were a Gen Con. Uh, go into the back behind the faux doors. They'd get armed, equipped, and uh, then they would be sent out into the arena against one of the champions. Most of them got creamed. Uh, sometimes they'd let someone get through a, a round or two, and then they'd send out one of their real champions. Uh, but it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun to watch, too. So it was here, get beat by a stick, thank you for your money? Uh, yeah, basically. <laughs> Sounds like uh, fun. It was, it was pretty popular. I mean, it was running, uh, I think, almost all day for three days, and there was always people going in to get beaten with sticks. You found a booth with a giant line in front of it, but you could never figure out what it was for, and eventually... It was for the Guests of Honor? Uh, yeah. The uh, the Guests of Honor were highly visible and uh, very pretty and, and out there uh, for the public to look at on one side of the booth. And uh, then there was a wall behind them. And on the other side of the booth is where the line started. Uh, and there were actually, it wasn't a line, it was a couple lines is what it looked like. And uh, no real way to know which celebrity each line was going to. Uh I'm sure there were obviously people in the line. They'd obviously figured out where they were going and which celebrity they were going to see, or maybe they didn't care. Uh, but really, it wasn't worth me figuring out. It wasn't worth the time for me to figure it out and get to where I needed to be in order to meet a celebrity. This next segment's going to count as a shameless plug. I'm here at Gen Con right now with Katie Bray. Katie Bray is going to handle my shameless plugs because I'm lazy. Anyways, here she is. Katie, if you will take it away. Hello there. Um, I'm here to talk about a fine Asmodee game, Werewolves. Uh, it's sort of like a, a version of Mafia. Everyone, It's a good party game. Everyone has a secret identity, some of which are werewolves, and there's lots of lying and stealing and deceiving and all that good social fun that makes a party so enjoyable. Um, and then if you like your uh, aggression to be more obvious, there's my personal favorite game of all time, Jungle Speed. Uh, which involves a great deal of hand-eye coordination, a, a good eye for matching shapes, and a willingness to pummel your opponent with a wooden block. At any rate, this is also a great pony game and is only uh, limited by how many people you can fit around a single table. Uh, that's my shameless plug for now, and now back to you. Thank you, Katie. Werewolves is the one that I'm most familiar with, and uh, I've been adoring it. Katie's telling me that uh, she tends to be the wolf. I can believe it, particularly with that whole deceit thing she was talking about. Uh, Jungle Speed I haven't played yet, but it does look fun. Anyways, that's another shameless plug, and thank you very much. There were a lot of other odd things that Thomas came back from Gen Con and, and, and talked about in the office. The uh, thing that I think would probably be the coolest was the large-scale Battletech. I've always thought Battletech was cool enough as little little giant robots, but actually big giant robots. Yeah, you can't see my hand, but I'm holding it about this high. And uh, that's how tall the models were, the, the miniature models. And uh, they basically had those. They had some buildings that were sized for those models, and they had people walking between with measuring sticks to... Uh, move them around and, and play out the battle. So were they big toys, or were they like... Some of them were uh, made from cardboard. Some of them, I think, were foam. 
uh, all of them were painted pretty nicely. So they were larger than toy scale. They were. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, like toddlers. Uh, <laughs> Do they have children dressed in robot costumes. Some of them were about a foot and a half tall. Okay. Something else that looks cool that we can't really explain that well, but we'll try, is uh, Hearst Arts was there, and everyone yes, the castle molds. Everyone has seen their molds, but they were actually sort of demoing the process when you got there. Yeah, they demoed. Uh, they demoed the process. I think just on the first day. I didn't see it happen any other day. Uh, they took some dental plaster on the first day, and they were pouring out molds and then painting them. But it was more the active process and just how fast it happened uh, that really attracted everybody's attention. And speaking of fast, just for a bad segue and a bad, oh. worse segue, oh. um, there were two there were two races at Gen Con, <laughs> and this yes. goes back to the making gamers do things that are physical. There was a there was a race with race cars. And then there was the Segway race. Well, it was uh, remote-controlled cars, uh, the Indy 400. Uh, they had a big track set up. Two people at a time would go head-to-head with the RC cars on it. The other one was a Segway race, which was racing against the clock. You had three minutes to complete a course on a Segway. It was a bit of an obstacle course. It didn't look real exciting. <laughs> Segways don't really ever look exciting. But yeah. Last of all, we'll tell you, all the things you missed at Gen Con that we were doing. Drew Happily, how are you doing? I'm mobile. That's because he's at Gen Con, and pimping our games at Gen Con is exhausting. Fun, but exhausting. And how are you doing at the con? Have you gotten to see anything other than the uh, demo room? I've gotten to see the booth. Our booth is awesome, by the way. Uh, so I understand that you're running the Munchkin World Tournament. Can you tell me a little bit about that? What we've done is we've got four rounds, and from each round we'll have four players going on to the semifinals, and we'll have four players from the semifinals going on to the finals, and then one of those will be the world champion. Um, we do have two slots for buy-ins for the European champion and the U.S. champion. They get in for free. Do they start with the original Munchkin? What do they play? Each group has been playing a different set of Munchkin. Um, Star Munchkin with Star Munchkin, the Clown Wars, uh, Munchkin Foo 2 and Munchkin Foo, Super Munchkin, and uh, Munchkin Bites with Munchkin Bites 2, Pants Macabre. We're going to save the actual original Munchkin with all three editions, Need for Steed, Clerical Error, and Unnatural Acts for the end, and that will be what will be played in the final. So the final is basically old school. Yes, it is. Are there any other tournaments going on right now? Well, we have an Illuminati tournament that has been going on, and we've also got a Frag tournament that's had its first round. I believe its second round is today, and tomorrow is the final with that one. Illuminati is already had its first round also. Aside from uh, the tournaments, what else is going on here? Well, we've got a set of tables that are reserved for us for the whole weekend, so we've been running demos at them, and plus our regular games and the tournaments and that type of thing that we've scheduled. Next year, we're hoping to have all of our games in the same area, and beyond that, we're also hoping to do the Path of Illumination. Any particular games you've been getting a lot of requests for or uh, been demoing a lot of? We've been doing a lot of King's Blood and a lot of Cow Poker for demos. Um, we've gotten some requests for Ninja Burger. We've gotten some requests for Munchkin. People really enjoy Frag still. Cool. And uh, King's Blood, that's a favorite of mine. That's basically a Crazy 8s variant. Crazy 8s are uh, Uno. 
is what it seems like. Um, it's a fun game. It's a quick game, cheap, a lot of fun. Okay, well, thanks for taking some time out to talk to me, Drew. Thank you. Peter Jackson must take the slick jet ski from the last National Bank. And with our last bit of con coverage for the summer, this is what Steve thought about Worldcon. So I spent last week at the Worldcon in Los Angeles. I had a good time. We didn't set up a sales booth at the con. It's funny. Twenty years ago, we were always in the dealer room, and we sold a lot of games. Then the independent retailers started coming, and we left it to them. This year, I saw no game booth in the dealer area. There was a company selling custom dice, and a couple of publishers seemed to have some RPGs, but that was it. And Flying Buffalo had a sales table in the actual gaming area. So the message there is we need a good general game retailer or two to start selling at Worldcon. The game area was excellent. It was always busy when I visited, though I did not get to go by there as often as I would have liked. The person in charge of gaming was Ira Ham, a man in black. The person running the SJ Games demos was Michael Hayden, who is also a MIB, and they did a great job. We playtested Munchkin Cthulhu there with three alternate rules for the cultists. Drive the playtesters mad. It went well. We got good feedback. The thing that took the most time for me at the con was the Chaos Machine. I've set it up at conventions before, and I will be going to PenguaCon with it in 07, but this was by far the biggest con we had ever taken it to. It was busy all the time it was open. We had up to 20 people at once, and I actually ran out of curved track at one point, and that's never happened before. For those who don't know, the Chaos Machine is a giant construction set for making marble run sculptures. Our fan page for it is at www.conchaos.com. This has nothing to do with any SJ Games product. It's just something I enjoy, and I've collected about a dozen Chaos sets. And when you put them all together, it's huge. The way we do it, it's an open source project. Anybody can come and build, and then the next person comes along and makes changes. And it's like Burning Man. The machine lasts a few days, and then it's all torn down and repacked. And when it's built again, it's completely different. So I spent a lot of time hosting the machine. I did speak on some panels, and I got to listen to a few more. And I met a lot of people, and I wandered around the exhibits, and I did the whole Worldcon thing. Convention committee did a good job. I could have spent two weeks there and never been bored, but I would have died of exhaustion and never made this report, and then Will would have had dead air on the podcast. So it's all for the best. And that's the end of episode three. Thanks for listening. Keep the questions and comments coming either to Fenordcast at sjgames.com or in the Fenordcast section of our forums. Coming up in episode four, a conversation with John Kovalik about all things Munchkin. The Fenordcast is a production of Steve Jackson Games and all music written and performed by Tom Smith at tomsmithonline.com and now also on iTunes.